0: We've come to the end of our Women of Christmas series. And so, as someone who came up and talked to me about that this this week said, you may have thought that tonight we were going to talk about Mary. Because that, yeah, it was definitely grace. Uh, You would you would think that the last woman of Christmas would be Mary. However, if you remember back to the beginning of this series, I said we were going to talk about four women in the genealogy of Jesus who are not Mary. So there's a fourth woman that we are going to talk about tonight. And if you look in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, you might be looking for the name of this fourth woman and unable to find it. In fact... When it was Grace, who brought this up to me earlier this week, I told her to go back and read it and find it. She read it again, and she still didn't find it. Okay? So you might be looking through and trying to figure out who this last woman we're going to talk about is. Now, some of you might argue with me that she wasn't mentioned by name. You would lose that argument, but you might try to argue with me. But anyone who is reading the genealogy, so when they wrote this, they wrote it for, like, I think when they originally wrote the Gospel of Matthew, they were really thinking of writing it to a Jewish audience, right, to the Israelite people. And so they knew the way they worded the genealogy, that anyone reading it would know who they were talking about when they said what they said. And you know, I think there's a reason that they worded it the way they did, and we'll talk about that at the very end when we're kind of wrapping it up and we're talking about what we can take from this story. But if you look in the genealogy, it talks about King David. It kind of goes in because that was an important part of the genealogy. But it says that he had a son, Solomon, with the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And I think referring to this woman as the wife of Uriah was an attempt to prove a point. And like I said, we'll talk about that at the end. But for right now, let's start back at the beginning of this story about the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So starting at the beginning, I'm sure some of you in here probably have no idea who Uriah the Hittite is or who his wife is. Some of you do, but we're going to talk about that tonight. Now, and I'm going to be honest with you guys, as I was starting to prepare this lesson, because I think, and you guys can tell me, you guys can be like, Brian, you did horrible. But I feel like I did a pretty good job of looking at these three stories previously through the lens of the woman's perspective. Like, from the character's perspective. And so I planned on doing that again tonight. But I'm going to be honest with you guys. And if you read Second Samuel 11 and 12, which is where this story is found, it's really hard to not make this story about King David. Okay, It's really hard to do that if you read the story. We're, we will definitely discuss his role, and we are going to discuss a lot about King David, but I'm going to try really, really hard to focus on the role of this woman known in the genealogy of Jesus as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. We see in 2 Samuel 11 that this woman's name was, in fact, Bathsheba. Now, if you know the name Bathsheba... You might know a little bit about this story, but if you don't, that's okay, because we're about to cover it real quick. So, we know that King David is viewed as like the greatest king in the history of Israel. He's, he's viewed as this great and mighty king. He was the chosen king. You know, we know the story of David and Goliath, that he was labeled as like this anointed king who didn't come from a line of kings he was a shepherd he was the chosen king and he was also the chosen king through which his lineage his family the messiah that we know as Jesus would be born but when we look at the story of Jesus or we look at the story of David we also see that David had many many flaws and quite frankly this story we're going to talk about tonight is a story about basically all of his flaws Okay, Because as we see very quickly, David's going to snowball out of control. So we're going to start in 2 Samuel 11. And we're going to start in verse 2. It's really going to set up. It's going to introduce us to Bathsheba and really set up the rest of our story. So 2 Samuel 11 verse 2. It says, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Uh, from the roof he saw a woman bathing the woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, he slept with her, and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Okay, we're going to pause there for a second, okay, because a lot just happened in those three verses. Okay. Okay. So immediately, like in three verses, in, in verses two through five, we see David commit two major sins. Okay, And we're not even talking about sending someone off to go take a woman from her home and bring him. To, like that was a, we see him commit lust as he looks upon Bathsheba while she's bathing. And then we also see him commit adultery in the act of bringing her into the palace to be with him. And like I said, I, I'm going gonna, gonna to try really hard to not make this about David, but, but he is such a pivotal part of this story that it's really hard not to. So what we're going to look at is, what does this mean for Bathsheba? We read these three verses and we look at it as David did this, David did this, and David did this. But what does this mean for Bathsheba? We have a woman who we know from earlier verses, her husband is off fighting in a war for King David, He's fighting in a war, so he he has left his wife at home. And she's minding her own business, bathing, in what I'm sure she probably thought was a somewhat private bathing area. And all of a sudden, one of the palace guards, or one of the king's men, knocks on her door. Now, Scripture does not explicitly tell us Her feelings about this situation. It doesn't say she was glad that David called upon her. It doesn't say she was fearful that he called. It doesn't tell us what she felt. But, you know, I think knowing what we know about the, the whole situation. And I think kind of knowing what we eventually will talk about about Uriah. I think we can make a guess that Bathsheba was probably not happy. About David calling upon her. It was probably not something she was excited about. Or she wanted to happen. But I think what she was probably thinking. Was that because the king is saying this. And doing this. That she has to go along with it. Or not only maybe she might be. Arrested. Imprisoned or killed. But it could also mean bad things for her family. And those that she cared about. And and so I'm thinking. And and again we're, we're making a lot of guesses here but I really feel like she was probably thinking that this would be something that she would have to do to keep herself and her family safe it might just be a one night thing and then it would be done and so she goes back home and she's probably just living her life after that no big deal and then she finds out she's pregnant and so now what was supposed to be maybe just this and even from David's perspective, what was supposed to just be a one night thing ends up with lifelong consequences. And and I and I tend to wonder what went through her mind at this point. Like I could see her saying, like, should I tell David? Should I not tell David? Because, you know, David could have just been like, oh, man, I can't have anyone find out about that. Hey, just go kill her. Like, he could have done that. He was the king. Or he could, have, he could have argued with her and said, that is not my child. I don't know what you're talking about. You are a liar and have her arrested, imprisoned, whatever, because he's the king and people will believe him. <clears throat> so I'm sure there was a lot of fear in having to tell David about the situation. She was probably asking what it would mean for her, her family, and her baby if she told David about what what had happened. But we see in verse 5 there that she sends a messenger to tell David that she's pregnant. And and I think in this moment, David has like a full-blown meltdown. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard me talk about this, but I talk about snowballing sin. And if you've ever seen like I've never actually seen this happen in real life. Like I've made a snowman where you roll a snowball. But you know I'm like in the, in the cartoons when a snowball starts to roll down the hill and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, bigger and then it like crashes into a village and like takes out a... a yeah, like... Okay. So I call, I call what we're about to see David do snowballing sin. Because it's, it's how we are in our life. We make one sin. We make one small sin... And because of that one sin, we find ourselves trying to cover it up or trying to do something else to prevent people from finding out or to make ourselves feel better about it or, or to do something else. And that, that snowball starts to roll downhill and get bigger. And then because it got bigger, we have to do something else. And so it rolls downhill and gets even bigger. And all of a sudden, the snowball is out of control. And, I, and, and you've probably heard me use that term snowballing sin before. But we see that David is about to go through this. He knows what he has done is wrong. He knows he's in a bad situation. But just like many of us, instead of just owning up to the mistake that he made and facing the music, like he could have just come out and said, hey, I did this. You know, I'm, you know, punish me as you see fit. But instead, he tries to cover it up. So what does he do? He reaches out to his commander and says, hey, send Uriah home to me, knowing that when he comes home, He will probably want to go home, see his wife, spend the night with her, and then he can be like, oh, we'll just blame her pregnancy on Uriah coming home from battle. However, there's one problem in this master plan that David comes up with. Uriah is an honorable man. And when he comes to the palace, David says, thank you for your service. Now go home and spend time with your wife and family. And Uriah says, I cannot do that while my men are sleeping in tents. I cannot cannot stand to be at home sleeping in my own bed. And so instead of going home to be with Bathsheba, Uriah sleeps on the steps of the palace that night. And so again, we we look back to Bathsheba. We know now that she's pregnant. She's home alone still. And knowing that David is working on trying to solve this problem in his own messed up way, she probably hasn't heard anything back from him. So like she has sent this message to David saying she's pregnant, and she probably has heard nothing back at this point. And now we know, and she probably didn't know this, but we know from the story that her husband is back in town, and judging from the fact that David could see her from his palace, her husband was probably very close in proximity to where she was, But yet she doesn't get to see him. And now, you know, we we have, obviously we are many, many years removed from this story. And we have a lot more uh, research and knowledge about, like, psychological damage that people go through through traumatic events. But I'm beginning to imagine with all these things piling up that Bathsheba is going through some really bad stuff at this point. She has reached... Probably what she would characterize as the low point of her life. It seems like everything's going wrong. And there seems like there's no escape from the situation. So the next day. David gets up and he gets one more shot to get Uriah to go back home. So what does he do? He commits more sin. That snowball just keeps rolling. He gets Uriah drunk. And he tries to convince him to go home in his drunkenness. But yet Uriah even in a drunken state, still refuses and spends another night on the steps of the palace. Well, at this point, David realizes that his plan is not going to work. And so he has to come up with a new plan to cover his mistake. And this is when things really start to get out of hand, because David basically has Uriah executed in a hands-off way. We read in verses 14 through 16, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, who is the commanding officer, and sent it with Uriah back to the battle. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest, and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah in a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And we read on, and we see that Uriah is killed in this battle. And not only is Uriah killed, but because of the situation David put the army in, many more of his men died. And so now, you know, a lot of times we like to attribute the death of Uriah to David's fault, which it was. But we don't think about the families of all these other men who were killed because of David's one mistake with Bathsheba. I mean, if he just owns up to his mistake all these men, all these families are still put together. And so we see David really letting this sin snowball spin out of control. He's now added murder to an already long list of horrible acts against Bathsheba, Uriah, and his own army. And again, we have Bathsheba here. Again, looking through her lens, now she's a widow. And we've seen from all these stories of all these other women how bad the situation of being a widow was in this day. Like, this was a bad deal. And so now, Bathsheba, on top of everything else and being at her current lowest, finds out that her husband is dead and she is now a widow, and she probably still has yet to hear from David. So she finds herself pregnant, alone, and widowed with no hope in sight. And so we see Bathsheba yet again reach a new low point. We pick up reading in verses 26 and 27. It says, When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned him. This is her reaching that newest low. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the lord. And so again, we don't know her feelings about this. We don't know if she was grateful that David saved her from being a widow and married her. But, you know, and again, I would assume that this was probably she felt like this was her only choice. You know, her choice was to live her life alone as a widow with an with a son in a situation where she could not provide for them or to just go along with it to marry David and to be provided for and taken care of. And so now we sit here and we look at this situation and and again, you know, Bathsheba might feel like, okay, things are getting a little better. At least now David's providing for me, but you've got to realize that she is still at a very low point given everything that's happened. <clears throat> And so we have these newlyweds, David and Bathsheba, expecting a child together. And maybe in her mind, things are starting to turn around a little bit. Maybe things are going to get better now. But then David gets a visit from a prophet named Nathan. And to save some time, and you can read uh, the, in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan rebukes David hardly, harshly. He calls him out. He tells him this elaborate story about men, you know, a man who has a bunch stealing from a man who has little. And David gets all mad at this man. And then Nathan says, that man is you because you had many, but yet you took from Uriah who had little. And David realizes the gravity, gr- the gravity of his actions and he breaks down and repents to Nathan and God. He says, I have sinned against you and I have sinned against God. But there's a catch. In 2 Samuel twelve, verse 13, it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. So he says, The Lord has forgiven you, he's taken away your sin. You are not going to die. I'm thinking David's bringing a whew, sigh of relief. Okay, now he's admitted his sin. But then Nathan says, But because you But because by doing this you have made enemies with the Lord, show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. And so now we have Bathsheba. Again, a victim in all this, right? She's at all time lows. Finally, it feels like maybe something started to turn around. David takes her as his wife. She's living in the palace. She has a son. And her son dies. And we have her at the lowest of low that could ever be. I mean, she's lost everything. She's lost her husband. She's lost her dignity. And now she's lost her child. Why did this happen? Like, why why does this happen to Bathsheba in this moment? Why did David's sin result in Bathsheba losing a son? But you see, that's just it. As we've walked through the story of these women, we have clarity in that their stories point to the truth of Jesus. You see, each of these women that we've talked about over the last four weeks have painted a different picture of who Jesus would ultimately be. That's why they're listed in the story of who Jesus is, is because their story tells about who Jesus is. They were his family, but ultimately they were images of him. So we see here Bathsheba lose a son because of someone else's sin... And I can't help but think that that's the perfect picture of God who lost a son because of our sin. And we see in this this chapter David begging and pleading with God for his son's life to be spared. And And it makes us recall these moments in the same way where Jesus in the garden before he was arrested and executed is pleading to God for his life. That God's son's life would be spared. And, and it's really crazy when we look at this to see how this picture of Jesus in this story of Bathsheba, and, and, and so why is she listed in the genealogy? It's because she paints a picture of who Jesus is. Her story is literally an Old Testament reflection of Jesus. And we've been able to say that each and every week about the women. In these, in these stories. So when I really started to break it down and say, why is Bathsheba, or termed Uriah's wife, listed in the genealogy of Jesus, I see three things. And I'm going to run through them real quick. First, she shows us that God uses what the world sees as broken you've got to know that throughout this whole process, she was on the verge, if not in the middle of a full-on mental breakdown. She was used, discarded, picked back up for the value of her son, and then ultimately destroyed by the death of her son. She had to be viewed very poorly by those around her as just this woman who, who damaged King David's reputation. And the sad thing is, None of this was of her own doing. And I know that there are some of you out there who have had similar experiences. You feel that because something was done to you that wasn't even your fault, that God can't use you anymore. But guys, that's so far from the truth, and we see it right here in this story. God gives us this story to show us that no matter how broken the world thinks you are, or even how broken you think you are, that God can and still will use you. So first, it shows us that God will use what even what the world sees as broken. And second, it shows us that your sins and your mistakes don't define who you are. We talked about at the beginning that her actual name wasn't listed in the genealogy. And I said we'd circle back around to that. And we're going to talk about it right now. That she was listed as Uriah's wife. And I think the reason they did that. I think the reason why the author did this when listing the genealogy. Was to remind the readers what David had done. You see, David is viewed as this great king. He's labeled a man after God's own heart. And it is... And was what he is known as. Like, I mean, if you ask people, was David a good king? They'd be like, yeah, he was a man after God's own heart. But this note is a reminder of his troubles and his failures. And, and I don't think that they did this in a, in a way to like destroy David's character or to make him look bad. <clears throat> but as a reminder that David did horrible things. But yet his legacy didn't reflect it. Do you see how that works there? David did some of the most deplorable. We look at this story and you would, you would say, how could a man who did all that stuff that David did in that story, how could that man be a man after God's own heart? That's messed up. But yet that's what David is remembered as. His sins did not define him. The grace of God and how he responded to that and turned his life around because of that is what defined who David was. And I think that they list in the genealogy Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah so that when the readers would read that they would go, Oh yeah, David did some really bad stuff like commit adultery with Uriah's wife, but yet God still used him to do mighty things. Guys, your sins don't define your legacy. And I get that it can feel that way now. Like, I get that you can make mistakes. Maybe you can, you can open up to some friends at school about mistakes you've made. Or maybe people know or people gossip or tell about whatever it is. Like, you can have mistakes and it can feel like that is defining your legacy as a person. But I'm telling you guys right now, you are still so young and you have so much life left to live that your legacy, your story is just getting started. Like seriously, if, if, if someone was making a movie about your life, we'd still be in the opening credits. Like what's happening right now is just like setting up a character. Like no one's thinking about what happens to you right now when you're 60, Your story is just getting started. Your legacy is not yet defined. So stop acting like it is. And I get that that's hard to do. And like I'm saying that, and you're like, there's no way I can not allow what has happened to me or the mistakes that I've done not define who I am. But God doesn't. So why do we allow it to? We have to stop allowing our mistakes to define us and begin to let God Define us. And then the third thing, the third reason I see as Bathsheba's name is listed in the genealogy of Jesus is what we already talked about. That Bathsheba and the loss of her son is a perfect picture of Jesus and God having to lose a son for the sins of others. But just like that story... The story of Jesus' death on the cross doesn't end with his death. A lot of people, like a lot of people picture Jesus on the cross. And the cross was an amazing thing. Like Jesus dying the death he did is a truly amazing thing. But what's even more amazing is that the story didn't end there. It ended three days later when he rose from the dead. And we see the same thing happen to Bathsheba here. We don't see her son actually raised from the dead. But we see in verse 24 of chapter 12... It says that David went and comforted his wife Bathsheba and then he lay with her again and she gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. Ultimately, we see David own up to his mistake, ask for God's forgiveness. And God blesses. Him and Bathsheba with a son. He commits in that moment when when he says that he wants to have another child with Bathsheba. That's him saying that he has wronged her. And that he's making a commitment to take care of her and to provide for her for the rest of her life. And so he has another child with Bathsheba. And this leads to her having a son named Solomon. Who despite all odds it was actually King David's fifth child. So he should have never become king, but God paved a way that Solomon would become the next king and Bathsheba would be the line that would, that would take David's line and ultimately leave it to the Messiah. Guys, we've looked at four stories. We've looked at four women who have been through some of the worst situations you can imagine. And I know that some of you are sitting in here feeling like you have been through some of the worst situations that you could imagine. But we have seen time and time again that God has used these women. He's used these women to show us his grace. And he's used these women to show us how he wants to use us despite anything that has happened to us. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this series. I hope that this this series really showed you a different perspective of the story of Christmas. Because, you know, we can sit here and we can tell the same Christmas story over and over and over and we get it. Like, it's a great story. It's a miraculous story. But without the context of truly understanding the underlying theme of it to really appreciate the grace of God through his son Jesus I don't think we can truly appreciate Christmas for what it is and so I hope and I pray that as we go from here tonight that you will have a newfound appreciation for the grace of God that you will have a newfound appreciation for the Savior who is Jesus. And that you will have a newfound appreciation for the celebration of his birth. Which is what we celebrate on Christmas. It's not about trees, it's not about presents, it's not about lights. I mean, those things are cool. like They're, they're really pretty to drive around and look at it. It's not what it's about. It's about focusing and praising and thanking a God... Who sent his son to die, like we saw in this story? God knew the end. God knew that his son was coming just to die, but he sent him anyway for you. And so, as we enter into this last week before Christmas, allow yourself to really focus on the true meaning behind it the truth of the grace of God and the truth of how he wants to use you each and every one of you no matter anything that's happened to you no matter how broken the world says you are God wants to use you let's pray God thank you so much that you use broken things like us God we are all sitting in here broken Every single one of us in here is a broken human. But you picked us up and you pieced us together. God, and just like it's a silly, silly joke, but just like these gingerbread houses that fell apart and look kind of ridiculous. God, you are writing a story about us that that is greater than any story that we could come up with. God, we thank you that you have the ability, that you have the the power, but ultimately, God, that you have the love for each of us, that you would do that for us, that you would pick us up, piece us back together, and write our story. God, we love you. We praise you for sending your son, Jesus. We know what a sacrifice that was, and we praise you and thank you for sending him to die so that we can have a chance to have eternal life through you, God. God, we love you and we praise you during this season. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.